All righty. Take your Bibles, if you would, please, this evening, and let's go to John, or excuse me, Genesis and chapter 3. Genesis is chapter 3, is where we will get started this evening. Genesis chapter 3, I want to read the first three verses this evening. Genesis chapter 3, the scripture says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said. That's first thing Satan said. He says three things in these five verses I'll read. And so that's the first of the three. Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Put it down. Satan was trying to stir doubt. Put it down and don't forget it. If he could do it, he would get Eve confused and get her to the point that she'd say, I don't remember if God said that. Or he'd love to get her to the point that she would say, no, I don't think he said that. He would love to get her all confused. See, that's what all these so-called versions of the Bible are about, is Satan's attempt to confuse mankind. That's what he's after. That's why some doctrines seem so close to being right while not being right. See, if Satan is trying his dead-level best to confuse mankind, and so you stay in that Bible. Brother Harvey encouraged us. He said, read your Bible every day. And that is a a very, very important issue toward not being confused. I I did not say toward not being saved. If you're saved, you're saved. But you can become confused while being saved. There's no doubt about it. Stay in the Bible, okay, guys? Stay in the Bible. Nod your head with me. Will you stay in the Bible? Good. All right. And so stay in the Bible. And then we see him also in verse 2 when, And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Here's the second thing Satan said. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. Did God say she would die if if she partook of it? He surely did. He surely said that. So now Satan is calling God a liar. It's going on all over. It's going on in seminaries. People saying Christ wasn't birthed of a virgin. Peter didn't walk on the water. Jonah wasn't swallowed by a whale. And you can, uh, the Red Sea did not divide. But what's the word of God say? Says the Red Sea did divide, said Jonah was swallowed by a whale, says that Christ was birthed of a virgin, and whatever the other one said, I don't remember, but it's true. Because it's in the Word of God. Now, the lying is still going on. Matter of fact, they're still up to it today. Satan's still at his old ways. Let's look in verse 5. For God doth know, this is the third point that I'm trying to say that Satan said that tempted Eve to sin. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So he says that you'll become as gods. And I've said it before, but I'll say it again that they will pedal right up to your doorstep wearing a little badge that says elders, and the Mormons will tell you that if you can bring enough spirit babies down from heaven, that you can have your own planet, guys, and become your own God. It is not biblical. And if it's not biblical, it's not right. Okay? Therefore, the point I'm after is, is what Satan did in the garden, he's still up to it today. Alrighty, let's go to the Lord in prayer this evening.
Father, I thank you so much for these two preachers. I thank you how you blessed us with it. And Lord, we ask in Jesus' name that you'd use these guys mightily and that, Father, you would reward them with the capability of preaching not to their glory but to yours and with your power. Now, God, in Jesus' name, we come to you with the evening service on the horizon. We need to hear from you. It's been an enjoyable day. But, God, may we start the day, 8.30 in the morning, is a little earlier than that this morning, with services trying to get our attention on the Word of God. And now may we, Father, in the evening, come back to giving our attention to you in the Word of God. Father, we've had some trouble out of some that want to go to sleep. Would you keep them awake, please? It's vital, important. This camp's not about the games. That may be what's most important to them, but that's not what it's about from your, from your, uh, from your way of looking at it. I'm convinced that the most important thing, God, about this camp is that they would hear the Word of God and be found obedient. And they simply cannot hear it while sleeping. Please, God, keep them awake. In Jesus' name tonight, bind Satan. And Father, may you have your will and way. In Jesus' name, amen. Brother Albert, I want to commend you. That was some good preaching, and I thank you for that. First time we've ever met has been this week, and I've grown to love you, and I thank you so much for your preaching. You stay right with the Word of God just like you're going, and just keep on plowing. Study much. Study much. I'm not saying you haven't. You have. I, I, saw, I saw signs of studying, but I'm just saying we never arrive. Keep on, keep on, keep on. All righty. All righty. Back up to Genesis chapter 1, if you would, please. Genesis chapter 1. We see it saying here, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Now, once upon a time, there was no time. And at that point, God stepped out onto the portals of nothing. And when he stepped out there, he looked into the vastness of nothingness and he spoke in, in immeasurable words, and he spoke, and everything came into existence. In other words, when the time came, God reached down his hand, and I'm quoting an author right here, and he reached down his hand of his omnipotence into the great abyss of nothingness, and threw out into nowhere everything, and nothing became something. Isn't that something? What a God we have. It's all hinged upon the first four words in the Bible. Bible. In the beginning, God. Now, the question is, is who is God? Now, that's a real good question. Go over to John chapter 1 and verse 1. John chapter 1, I'll probably be back right, right where you're at, so but Genesis is easy to find. John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it says, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now the question is, now we've narrowed down who is God, whoever this word is. Notice the word word is a capital W. So in the beginning was the word. Notice it says, and the word was with God, but the King James Bible says, and the word was God. Now, First John chapter 5 
and verse 20, and I've got a wrong reference because my Bible, it's in the other Bible and I don't have to go get it. You're going to have to take my word and ask me where the reference is. That the word in 1 John, somebody may have it, and if you have it, just kind of yell it out to me and tell me. But the word in 1 John shows itself to be Jesus Christ himself. That's what it shows itself to be. 1 John chapter 5, verse 7. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. Now, usually when you're talking about the Trinity of God, you'd know the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. But here it says it's the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And so obviously here, the word Word or the title Word is another name for Jesus Christ. If we compare that with John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. Who's that making reference to? It's making reference to Jesus Christ. And the Word, meaning Jesus Christ, was with God. And the Word, meaning Jesus Christ, was God. So we know now that Jesus Christ was God. And if we follow that first, uh, that John chapter one down to verse three, it says, all things were made by him. What a statement that is. Now, in Genesis chapter one, when you're there, in the beginning God, everything hinges upon what you think about that statement. Everything hinges about what you think about that statement. Infidelity begins right here. If you just want to think lightly or not believe it at all in the beginning God, then you'll just end up pressing on into all kinds of infidelity and wickedness. You can find out right here that this is where atheistic kind of thinking comes from. We were in Southern California back a few years ago, and Nadine and the girls were going to go down. We had a stretch of apartments, and it was like there was a row of apartments, the doors facing in over there, and a row of apartments over here, door facing in. And it's kind of like a little courtyard area in the middle. And so Nadine and then the girls went down that side, and myself and the guys went down this side. And about halfway down, I looked at the end, and it looked to be just a bunch of guys and kind of gangish looking. And I thought to myself, we need to beat the girls down there. We don't need the girls to get there first. So we kind of picked the pace up somewhat. And we got down there and I went to one guy who appeared to be the ringleader and I tried to give him a tract. And he said, oh, I don't need one of those. And he gave me a hard time. And so I went to the next guy. Next guy took it. Next guy took it. Next guy took it. And as I went to those three or four guys, the ringleader guy started saying things like, oh, there's no such thing as a God. This is foolishness. These guys are crazy. There's no such thing as a God. And I remember as I looked at that guy and I said, Mister, I said, Betty, the Bible says, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. And that boy began mocking him on his own self and he looked at his friends and said, Hey guys, I'm a fool. The Bible says I'm a fool. And he started laughing at his own self. And I thought, what a tragedy. We were in Tucson, Arizona, and I didn't pay any attention to this one guy I walked up to, but there were three of them, two men and a woman. They were in about their uh, oh, mid-30s mid to mid-40s range. And I went up to this one guy and didn't pay much attention. I don't want it, mister. I said, okay. Went to the lady, gave her a tract, went to the next guy and gave him a tract. The guy that I had rejected said, oh, there is no such thing as a God. Not having paid much attention to it. Before I had turned around, I said, Mister, the Bible says, the fool hath said, and when I turned around, this guy was about six foot four. I didn't notice how tall he was before. And all of a sudden, I'm looking up at this massive man and saying, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. And all of a sudden, I realized, I just called a big old man a fool, and I said in my mind, I may be on the verge of a fight. <laughs> and so I, but he didn't do anything. You know what he did? He mocked himself. I'm a fool. 
God says that you can become a fool or you can become one of the wisest people that's ever been based upon what you will do within the beginning God. Now, without believing verse 1, in the beginning God, then you will never realize yourself to be a sinner because sin is simply a disobedience or a breaking of the laws of God. But if there is no such thing as a God, you've got no laws from God to break. Therefore, you'll never recognize yourself to be a sinner. First off, I've already gone over where sin came from and the origin of sin. But one day it came across my mind when the scripture made this statement. It said, uh, as I began to notice it, that Eve, the woman, sinned first. But Romans 5, 8, wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, so death was passed upon all men for that all have sinned. And I began to wonder to myself, why is it Eve sinned first, but death came upon all mankind through, through man? And I began to wonder about that and think about that and consider it and pray about it. And let me say something right here on studying your Bible. Just because you don't know something does not mean that this Bible is not right. You may look at something and then look at something over here and you say they don't seem to go together. That does not mean that is not right. Just because you do not have the enlightenment and the understanding on a passage of scripture, do not throw God's word out. The best thing, if I can get in for everybody in the room to do, the best thing that you could do right now for your life is to grasp this old King James Bible and understand it to come from God himself without one mistake in it, without one error without missing one word without having too many words in it it is exactly right and exactly what God wanted us to get now nod your heads if you see anybody dozing off brother Jacob tell me and we'll have them stand up okay uh, uh, hey wake him up Calvin I need you to stand up for me okay go ahead and stand right up there for me hey stand up for me all right now we can't get going to sleep Alrighty. Now, it has nothing to do with, I think I'm such a great preacher, they need to be listening. It has everything to do with, we have such a great God, the author of this Bible, that everybody needs to be listening. Now, I'm not mad. I'm not mad in a slice. Now, this Bible, where in the world was I? Oh, I was on the topic of, of uh, why is it that woman sinned first, but sin came into the world to, uh, through man. And I was reading this one man. And as soon as you think you can stay awake, you can sit down, okay? And I was reading from this one man. Uh, and this one man uh, made this statement. He said that, uh, that the blood comes from the fathers. And when he made that statement, he was a doctor, and when he made that statement, it went just like that, that when, when Adam sinned, he sin-tainted his blood, and the sin through the blood passed into, uh, to, uh, to the children. But see, without blood coming from the mom, it could not come that way. And the point I'm after on this is, is what is so important about a virgin birth? Now, I know I'm talking doctrine, and you're going to say, this is boring, preacher, this is boring. But if we don't get our doctrine down straight, we're going to be in some false cult somewhere down the road. Just like I said, somebody told me one time that the Jehovah Witness, I don't like calling them that, I call them Russellites, are 75% ex-Baptists, and that bothers me. Why are they ex-Baptists? Why did they not recognize that thing to be false and heresy before they got into it? Well, chances are they were just lost people sitting in the church. But anyway, they should have been able to say the doctrine doesn't seem to be right if the Holy Spirit would have given them that light. We've got to know our doctrine. The virgin birth of Christ was vital. 
Because if Christ would have been born of some man here on earth, if Joseph would have been his father, if it had been like some of the liberals want to say, some man came down from Europe and he was the father, if that's the case, then Christ would have inherited the sin of those men and he would have nothing better than to be a sinner in need of a Savior just like I am. But he is sinless. He did not get his blood from Mary, as some have tried to say. It is an impossibility. And for the sake of some trying to say, there's two different lineages, those different lineages in Luke and in Matthew, that is not the case. If you trace the lineages, you'd find out there's a cursed lineage in the Matthew being Joseph's side. There could not have been a king come out of Joseph's lineage, out of his lineage, because there was a curse on Jeconias in there. And with that curse on Jeconias, he said there'd never be anybody mount the throne again. But that wasn't the lineage that he came from. He didn't get the lineage to mount the, the throne because Joseph was not his father. But because of the fact that the heavenly father is his father, Jesus Christ had a royal bloodline, a sinless bloodline. Therefore, his blood is priceless and can pay for our sins. Now, I'm on this topic of sin. I need you to write something down. This does not mean anything as far as look at me. I'm just trying to give us an idea and get our minds clicking. But on this topic of sin, sin is so vitally, vitally important that Christians fight against it that I strive to pray along these lines every day. Doesn't mean anything. Look at Bill Snarley's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get us to hate sin like God hates it and to fight against it like God fights against it. First thing I pray every day, I mean along these lines, is that God would help me to be dead to sin. The second thing I strive to pray was out of the book of James where God says, bridle your tongue. He's talking about the bridling of the tongue. He says in the book of Psalms, he said, I've set a watch over thy mouth. It's an important issue. I know I'm going to go fast and if you want questions, you can come ask. Romans chapter 12 says, be not conformed to this world, but be trans... Guys, wake them up again. They stand up again. Stand up again. Stand up. No going to sleep today. No going to sleep. All right, now, Romans chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2 say, Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. And how do we get a renewed mind? That's where God has to somehow move our mind out of the way and insert the mind of Christ in its place. There have been times I knew I was going to be in conversations that I simply did not know how to handle the conversation. It was not one of those things I could know what we were going to be talking about so I could go into the Bible and say, God, help me to know exactly from the Bible what to say. I just had to say, God, would you help my mind to be like yours and help me to say what you want me to say? And God, I'm just going to trust you to help come out of my mouth what's right. That's important. Thirdly, the thing I try to ask is, is Job made this statement, and I'm going to give a misquote, but I'll get it close. He said this, I have made a vow with mine eyes. And he went on and made this statement, why then should I think upon a maid? I'm going to answer that question. Job said he had made a covenant with his eyes, and there needs to be men on a daily, daily basis make this statement with God. God, I'm going to give you my eyes and I'm going to turn from that which is wicked and I'm going to plead with you to open my eyes unto that which is right and open my eyes unto the things of your word. But God, I'm going to need your power. Let me take this thing a step further because I'm on a target. God, I'm going off to camp and I'm going to give you my eyes. 
And I'm going to turn from that which is wicked, and I'm going to turn into that which is righteous, but I'm going to need your power and hold on to it, because there's going to be some that are not dressed right at camp. Now that won't work. Now girls, one of the things that you can do to help a guy do right, let me go at it from a different angle. Let me go at it from this angle. Now I'll go at it from that angle first. One of the things you can do to help a guy do right is dress right. You'll help his eyes to not be violated. You'll help his mind to not be violated. Dress right. Dress It's a vital issue. It's a vital issue. Now let me go at it from the angle that I thought I'd go at it from the beginning. Guys, how to find a wife and what to look for. That's why I thought in that way it's not quite as offensive aiming at the girls. I'm just telling you how to look for a good godly woman. Here we go. Look at Exodus chapter 28. Exodus chapter 28, and I'm going down to verse 42. And I want us to notice what God talks about on what's covered here. He says in Exodus chapter 28 and verse 42, And thou shalt make them linen breeches, and you'll just understand, and I'll tell you why there is a difference here. Why does, does this word, uh, well, let me just state this. Breeches is men's, is, will be a man's garment. We can call them trousers if you want, but breeches is a Bible word. Pants is not a Bible word. It has a derivative from a whole different word and actually has a derivative from more of a feminine side of things. But breeches is a man's word. Now, Exodus chapter 28 verse 42, notice what he said, to cover their nakedness from the loins even unto the thighs they shall reach. Now, guys, if you're looking for a girl that's not showing her nakedness, be at least sure, according to this verse, her thighs are, her thighs are not showing. That's step number one. Go over to Isaiah chapter 47. Now, girls, if I were you, and if I were looking for a godly man, and I'm seeing what the Bible says on what a godly woman should be and know that a godly man's looking for that, I'd pick up and pay right good attention. Isaiah 47 verse 2. Notice this, he said, Take the millstone, grind stones, grind the meal, uncover the locks. Hold, now here it says, Make bare the leg, uncover the, the, the thigh, pass over the rivers, thy nakedness shall be uncovered. Now, on this topic here, there's the thigh made reference to again. Uncover the locks. Some people have, have, have attached it. I cannot say I know this to be a fact. I can only tell you what some authors have said. And I can tell you that when they say uncover the locks, it was something along the lines that would be on the side of the leg and had latchets on the side and they would undo those things or maybe they called them locks and they would undo those so that a portion of the woman's leg hung out. Now the point that I'm after on this is, is that would most, if that be correct, that would be most like what we see in slits on dresses today. Uncover the lock, thy locks. Now, we've seen then that nakedness, he says here, he said that nakedness is for sure the uncovering of the thigh. And then when he said this, this complicates that kind of thinking somewhat to me when he says, make bare the leg. Now, the thigh is most assuredly part of the leg, no doubt about that, but so is the ankle. 
I'm not real sure on that topic, which makes me say I'd get it as long as I could so I was sure I was right with God when I met God, girls. You know, back at the turn of the century, coming to the 1900s, the 20th century, that one of the stipulations for being a school teacher is that your ankles didn't show. That's in America. Alrighty, so we're dealing with nakedness, and so we see here that the nakedness for sure that the the thigh cannot show. I always state, don't rub the line. I mean, if the line is the thigh, then get it so long at least that the thigh does not show because that brings about nakedness. And boy, you surely don't want that. You surely don't want that. Now go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let me change topics just a little bit. One of my boys made a statement to me one time. We were going into a church and he was probably about nine years old when he made this statement. He said, Dad, I've learned how to tell who the troublemakers are when we go into a church. I said, tell me how you figure it out. He said, I looked for these buzzed-necked women. That's what he said. He said, I've found that if the lady is a shaved-necked woman, she's almost always going to be somewhere in trouble against the man of God. Now, that's what she said. Now, I'm going to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and I want you to look at verse 4. I'm dealing with the topic of the length of hair. I want you to look at verse 4. Really, for me to hit this topic right, I have to begin with verse 3. Look when it says, But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is, is the man, and the head of Christ is God. I've already opened a can of worms, guys. You better look for, is that woman capable of submitting to you as the authority? Did you see it there? The head of the woman is the man. Well, how can I tell, preacher? You better look at how she responds to her father. That'll give you some insight. If you you can't see her father to know how she responds to him, look and see how she responds to the authority roaming in the church. Does she respond in a proper fashion? So we've got the head. The head of man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man. And so now we come to verse 4. And let me talk to the guys just a second. He says, every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered. What does that mean? That means long hair. What's long hair, Brother Snodderly? Exactly where does it become long and where does it become short? I don't know. I'll tell you what one author said and then I'll give you my personal opinion. Verse 14. It said, Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? One author said it this way. He said that the man's hair has a natural line and that you ought to try and keep it within the bounds of the natural line of what's there. I don't know about that, but I know this much. I determined I'd just get my hair so short nobody could call it long and I'd be, uh, especially me and especially God, then I would just be in the, in, the, in the right place. Now, notice that if a man back in verse 4 prays with his head covered, he said he dis- dishonoreth his head. Now, let's get this thing right. Verse 3, the head of man is... Christ. If a man prays with his head, his physical head covered, meaning long hair, he dishonoreth his head, meaning Christ. Guys, it's possible for us to be saved and our hair get too long and to bring dishonor to the very one that saved us. That's what that verse is saying. Look at verse 5. But every woman that hath pray, that, that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered. Now, remember the guys, if he has his head covered, if for the woman, if she has her head uncovered, it says the same statement, dishonoreth her head. Now, in this case, it says that if the woman pray or prophesieth with her head uncovered, meaning short hair. And then it says she dishonoreth her head, meaning her husband. 
It is a dishonor to the husband for the woman to have short hair. Compare that down to verse 15. In verse, well, we better look at verse 5. Let's look at that a little bit more because I cut it off short. It It says, for that is even all one as if she were shaven. So God says for a woman to have short hair, it is as if she had her whole head shaved. Now, compare that down to verse 15. And in verse 15, but if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. Now, girls, let me give you one thought on this thing off of verse 15. If a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her. Now, where does long and short begin and end? I don't know. I don't have the answer. But I know that one way you can find out is not what do you feel like? What do you like? What's the style going in the world? I want to be sure I fit in. That's not how you figure it out. Let me give you one philosophy that one woman told me, and I'm just going to pass it on to you. She said that she felt as if God spoke to her in this fashion. When it said, if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her. She felt as if that God spoke to her that the longer the hair, the more the glory. Now, put it where you want. But the only thing is, is I'm trying to get us past the point of just trying to find the line and get it right on the line. Why don't we just, you know, my philosophy has always been, if, if I could draw a line like that right there, and that's the line of sin... Over there's sin, over there's righteousness. I've always tried to, tried to not say, okay, now I want to just try to walk that line. I want to be close enough where I can have a little fun with the world and close enough here where I can have a little fun with God because all it takes is one ill wind and it's liable to blow you into sin. My philosophy has always been is find that line. There it is. Now, get way over here and get away from that line. Now, if you stumble over here, you're not as likely to get into sin. What am I saying? Guys, get your hair short, so short that you don't, that, I mean, it's beyond question. And girls, get your hair so long, it's beyond question. Go over to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, and I'm going down to verse 5. In verse 5, the scripture says this. I'm dealing with a whole other topic now, but I'm dealing with this. The script, I'm, I'm now I'm kind of aiming it all. I'm not on the guys trying to help figure out how to spot a woman. I'm, I'm just on this topic now in verse 5. I'm on the top. I'm just kind of hitting different sins is what I'm doing. By whom ye, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations. And there's three points in this, in this verse here that we would want to look at. By whom we have received grace and apostleship. And so by that receiving, there is first point number one out of verse 5. A gift. A gift has been given. It's come from God. What's the gift? The gift is twofold, grace and apostleship. Now, first off, there's grace, and so we'd use the, the, the grace to be significant or pointing at the fact that we've been saved. So God's given us a gift, the gift of salvation. Isn't that a wonderful gift? And then that word apostleship. Now, we know there's no such thing as an apostle. Christ himself picked the apostles. They were visible to see Christ uh, as, as, uh, as, they, as I could see you. They, he, they were as visible. Christ was as visible to them as that. So there are no apostles today, but the word apostle means sent. And if you're saved tonight, you've been sent 
Five times I said earlier in this week that there are five go, uh, five great commissions. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. All five have the great commission in them. And so all of us have been sent. So in that side or that definition of apostleship, we all have it. So the point I'm after is, is that God has given us a gift. He's given us the gift of grace, meaning salvation. He's given us the gift of, of, of uh, servitude as well. It's a gift. It's not to be a burden. Oh, I have to wipe the tables. I have to vacuum the the room over there. I have to take the trash out. That's not what servitude is about in serving the Lord. Servitude in serving the Lord is about God has given me a gift. I've been graced with the privilege to do something for the Lord. That's what serving and working for the Lord is about. Notice also in verse 5 that it says... By whom we've received grace and apostleship, so we see the gift. Secondly, we see the purpose of the gift being for obedience to the faith. He says for obedience to the faith. Now, here I want to make this one statement that there is this possibility that what's being said is, is that we have received grace for obedience. See, it would be one thing to want to be obedient, but we can't. But we need the grace of God to be able to even obey when we hear God. Wouldn't it be something to hear God and calling us to preach or calling us to play these beautiful instruments and want to do it, but can't? See, God's given the grace to be able to fulfill those very desires of our heart toward Him. Now, in this case, the purpose for the gift that God gave was for obedience. Go over to to, to, uh, Hebrews chapter... I believe it's chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. And come down to verse 8. Now I'm stating this, is that every child of God should be obedient to every authority in their lives. As long as they're not contradicting Scripture. And in the case of the crowd I'm talking to for the most here, I'm talking about you should obey your parents. And if you're not doing it, you're not living right with God and you're living in sin. You should obey your parents. You should obey your Sunday school teacher. You should obey your pastor. You should obey school teachers. You should obey the authorities that God puts you in your life. Look at verse uh, verse 8. By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. Now, I'm not going to do an injustice to it, but look at the comma after the word Abraham. And look at the comma after the word inheritance. Now, a structure of a sentence would be on the outside of the commas, and to help understand what's being said, that's on the inside of the commas. So, in other words, we could read what's on the outside of those two commas, and we would have the proper sentence. It says it this way, by faith, Abraham obeyed. Now, to understand what that means, you have to look inside the commas. When he was called uh, called to go out into a place which he should have to receive for an inheritance. But by faith, Abraham obeyed. Now, you must obey. God has graced you and has given you the purpose of Him, giving you the gift of salvation, and it's for obedience. And if you're ever going to obey, you must obey by faith. And if you say, I just can't obey, you ought to be on an old-fashioned altar asking God, God, would you increase my faith so that I can, Father, by your grace and by your honor, be able to obey in a capacity I've never obeyed before. See, there's some things that just we don't like doing, though we've been told to do, therefore we must do it if we're going to be right with God. 
We must do it if we're going to be right with God. Romans chapter 1, verse 5, he said that he'd given grace and apostleship. Then he said the purpose for the gift was for obedience to the faith among all nations. And then we see who gets the glory. It is for his name. That's what it's all about. We are to function within that grace. We are to function within that obedience. And we're to not do it so somebody pats us on the back. But we are to do it so that God gains the glory. I'm dealing with this topic of sin. And I began by telling you that sin is a terrible, terrible thing. I began by telling you that I strive to pray. God, watch my mouth. God, help me to be dead to that sin. God, with, you, with my mind. God, would you please help my mind to not be conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of my mind. God, would you take my eyes. The next thing I pray for is in Psalm 19, where it says, keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sin. The word presumptuous means willful. You know that you have enough things that you know are sin that you and I have to fight with or we're going to be doing it without having to sit here and try to figure out what maybe it might be sin that I'm not sure of. There's enough known sin in this room right now. There's enough known sin in this room right now to hinder this very camp for the rest of of the endurance of this camp. Known sin, known sin. I'm not talking about stuff that we haven't quite learned in the Bible. I'm talking about what you know is wrong. And what I know is wrong. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sin. I pray God help me to be humble in your eyes. I pray God out of 1 Peter. He says add to your faith virtue, virtue, knowledge, knowledge, temperance, temperance, patience, patience, godliness, godliness, brotherly kindness, brotherly kindness, charity. I pray out of, out of Ephesians chapter 6. God would you give me the whole armor of yourself. Would you gird about my loins with truth. Will you put upon me the breastplate of righteousness and shod my feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. What a wonderful message you gave the other night out of Ephesians 6 on that armor what a blessing that was come up here and help me and then i pray god help me to take the yeah you're right there come on up here jared right yeah come on up here and help me step right up there now i also pray that uh god in that same uh, ephesians 6 the the armor to above all take the shield of faith now let's let's just have jared you stand right there and let's say that I'm walking down the path and I look out there and out on the horizon I see old smudgy face. Now that's Satan. And uh, it says, above all taking the shield of faith wherewith we shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, right? Now I see old smudgy face out there and he's got a fiery dart in his hand and he's aiming that fiery dart and he wheels that dart right toward me. Now I've got the capability and I'm watching that fiery dart and I'm saying to myself, I think I can handle it. I don't need the shield of faith this time. And I sidestep that shield of faith. I mean, I sidestep that fiery dart and I laugh at old smudgy face and I say, boy, you old fool, you missed me. I was quicker than your old fiery dart. It went right past me and catches the one that I was to be protecting. We're talking about the shield of faith, not just knocking those fiery darts aside. We're talking that that shield of faith quenches those fiery darts. If you miss that fiery dart or sidestep it, the fiery dart didn't catch you. What a selfish mentality, but it's still on fire. It may catch somebody else. As a parent, we have an obligation to walk by faith and to plead with God, increase my faith. Because we've got wives, we've got children behind us. As pastors, we've got an obligation to walk by faith. We've got people behind us following. And it is vitally important, first off, for the adults to get that shield of faith and put it out there and use that thing. 
It's not easy walking by faith. I understand that. It is simply not easy. I'd rather take the bull by the horns and do it myself, but that does not quench the darts. We must walk by faith. And now let's do this. Let's say I've got a child who's not wanting to be obedient. I'm not saying that's, that's your attitude. I'm just saying, let's say that this was my boy. He doesn't want to be obedient. And let's say that he goes up here in the choir loft somewhere. Just step on up there. I'm down here trying to lead this way, and my boy's not obedient. He's not following me. He's gone up there somewhere, and all of a sudden, I'm down here ready to defend against that fiery dart and put it out, and Satan throws it over there instead of this way because my boy got out from behind Dad who had the shield of faith. It could be the pastor. It could be the dad. It could be any authoritative way. There's two things about this. We must take the shield of faith, and they must follow it's a twofold issue that's vital. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. It's a twofold issue, that shield of faith. Then as well, it says, above all, taking the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. Now, it doesn't say above all. It said, taking the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And then he says, praying always. So, we are to be prayer warriors. We are to be prayer warriors. Now, on this topic of sin, that's where I kind of had my beginnings. This topic of sin, it says that the uh, two things that I wrote down here, that, that sin, it has twofold that it does to us. First off, sin pollutes us. You ever heard anybody say, I feel like I'm not clean? How about Psalm 51? David cries out, wash me, purge me, cleanse me. Purge me with hyssop, he says. He cries out along those lines. He felt unclean, though he were saved. So David felt that pollution, that filth within himself. And then there's a second thing. If there's a second thing on this topic, is not only does, does sin give us that pollution, but it also reaps guilt. You ever, you know, have you ever had done something you know you shouldn't have done? And you got cleansed, you got forgiven, but you still felt guilty about it. Sin has a twofold thing that it reaps. Let me give you a quote by Spurgeon here. His, he said this, he said that there was but one crack in the lantern. He said, and the wind had found it out and blown out the candle. He says, how great a mischief one unguarded point of character may cause. One spark blew up the magazine. One sh- and, and wait, let me read it. One spark blew up the magazine and shook the country for miles around. One leak sank the vessel and drowned all on board. One wound may kill the body, and one sin may destroy a soul. And let me qualify that one sin may destroy a soul. If you're here tonight without Jesus Christ, and you have, you do have, there's no and ifs about it, you do have sin upon you, your soul is condemned to hell, no way around it. But let me talk to the saved. How about us? We're saved. We've trusted in Jesus Christ to save our souls. But one sin, we didn't go talk to him about Christ, maybe when God wanted us to. One sin. Jacksonville, Florida. I met the man Mike Lown. Mike Lown told me, he said, my dad is dying. He said, Brother Snarley, would you go meet him? And would you talk to him about the Lord? And Mike Lown, I remember as I, I said, Mike, I will. It was on a Saturday, and I was in college, and I had work, and I had a family. 
And I remember that somehow, and I can't tell you all how, I did not willfully say I'm not going to go see him, but just the timing of my life at that point, it, it was a week. I knocked on Mike Lowne's father's house the next Saturday, and when Mrs. Lowne came to the door, I said, Mrs. Lowne, I'm Bill Snodderly. I explained how I'd met her son, how he wanted me to come by and visit him, and Mrs. Lowne began to weep. She said, my husband died on Tuesday. Now I began to get broken, and I said, Mrs. Lowne, do you have any idea whether he ever trusted Christ as his Savior? She said, to the best of my knowledge, he never did. Let me qualify that statement that was just made, that I just made for the saints. One sin condemns a soul. You say, but you couldn't have forced him, but I could have given him an opportunity. And I sinned by not taking a soul important enough. It became pretty serious. Well, this evening got two or three other things I'm sitting here, but I believe I need to just close with this. What is it that happens when a person gets saved? I'm just going to read this to you as I've got it here. What is it that takes place by the grace of God in the life of a believer? Romans 5, when I got saved by the grace of God, I became justified. Isn't that wonderful? Completely forgiven. Romans 6... By the grace of God, I died with Christ. Romans 8, no more condemnation. 1 Corinthians 1, placed in Christ. 1 Corinthians 2, received the Holy Spirit of God in my life by the grace of God when I got saved. 1 Corinthians 2, 16, I've been given the mind of Christ. I don't have to think about that wickedness I used to think about. I know it's still there. I know it's still there. But when it wants to pop up into my mind, I start pleading with God, God, that is not a proper godly thought. Please take that from me. By the grace of God, when I got saved in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I was bought, bought with a price. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I've been established and anointed and sealed by God. 2 Corinthians 5, I'm no longer lived for myself. I live for Christ. That's what we're talking about, being saved tonight. I live for Christ. I live for Christ. Stand with me as I'll tell two, three more right here at the end. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, when I got saved, I was crucified with Christ, but I was also resurrected with Him. Ephesians chapter 1, I've been blessed with, with spiritual blessings. And Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, I've been chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world. That does not mean that He didn't choose others. He, chose, he, just, he just knew who would be saved and who wouldn't and made some decisions on that foreknowledge. All righty. This evening, I've preached two things. I've preached salvation. I've tried to at least preach in such a fashion that the Holy Spirit might use it. And I've preached holy living, at least physically holy living. And this evening, I asked the question, are you living for God if you're saved? If within your life, the desire, you say, I know I'm saved. But can you look at the way that you are right now, the things you think about, the things you gaze upon, the things that you listen to, the things that you say, the places that you go, the way you dress? I didn't get on some things there. I diverted from some just because of the sake of time. But there's many a thing there. Can you say within your heart that as best I know, 
that I've got things right with God. I'm talking to the saved. And then to the, to the, to the lost this evening, I plead with you, if you're here without Christ, that you can come to Him. That you can come to Him.